0: Welcome to episode 33 of Low Muck, a tiny slice of the muck podcast where we talk to people in the media and politics about their favorite stories or experiences. I'm Tina Jaramillo. And I'm Hillary Dougherty. Today we are interviewing artist, writer, and podcaster, Maya Grants. Hillary, tell us about today's guest.
1: Maya Grants is an artist in video, performance, installation, and community-generated projects, her work inter- interrogates social imaginaries of American culture and how constructions of gender, race, class, and progress operate in our shared myths, public rituals, and private desires. She also co-hosts the Sauce Podcast, a culture and Damn. politics podcast. Yeah. <laughs> yes, girl. A culture and politics podcast where they drink cocktails and ruin the stuff you love. <gasps> yes. That's me. I love this podcast. <laughs> I want to drink and ruin everything for everyone. Yes. Burn it. Turn it down. Welcome Maya. <laughs> yes. Thank you for being here with us. Thank you so much. Thanks
2: so much for having me.
1: Yes. So tell us uh how did you find your way to art? How did this become your way of expressing yourself?
2: Oh, I think that um I mean I was I was gonna be a dancer and then it was you know, I was gonna be an actor and then I became a director and then it became visual art, but I was always on this on this path in some way. Mm-hmm. I feel like it was I I just had to do it. Um, it's funny. We just did an episode about uh, where we were ruining Ted Lasso and we were talking to oh. a we we're Yeah. It's just like, Oh, the white guy is going to come and like save, save. professional sports yes. for itself. Like, oh, yeah, really? God. That's really how it's going to happen. Oh. Um, I like uh,
0: Ted Lasso. We, Do you like Ted Lasso? I I'm, don't. I, I'm not a see, fan. My husband is see, a fan.
2: It. <laughs> the thing is, is that we love Ted Lasso. Ted Lasso is undeniably almost like atrociously charming. Yes. But we wanted to get to the things that are problematic about it, and so we interviewed Bobby Warshaw, who's a former soccer, actual professional soccer player, and we were talking to him about like what makes an athlete, because now he does a lot of consulting, and he said you know, I was consulting with some coaches about like 12 to 14 year olds. Who's really going to make it? And uh, is it the speed? Is it the skill? And they were like, and he was like, no, it's delusional arrogance.
3: Mm, It's like, who
2: is the most delusional? That's who's going to be a professional athlete. That was amazing.
3: I I
2: (laughs) I feel a little similarly about being an artist. I always, it's not like I was so talented. I just had this, delusional, uh, ferocious desire to do it. Mm. And uh, here we are.
0: Oh, oh I love that. I feel that applies to uh, a lot of people running for office. Oh way. my gosh, it does. <laughs> Tina,
2: you're right. Uh,
1: but we, we, yes, but we need folks like that because they're, the rest of us are these are drones, basically. We're yes. worker bees, you know, but we need people who are well, going to say, I can do this and I'm going to make art. And, I'm gonna, we need, and art is very important in yes. our world. It really is. Oh,
2: but God. I also think in terms of running for office, mm. I don't know that it's, I think that the people who are more complex thinkers Mm -hmm. are not going to, they're the ones who are just never going to run. That's why when we occasionally have a politician who seems to have like the richness of complex, critical thought in addition to having the delusional arrogance to run for office, they are so exciting for us. Yes. Like I know for myself, those particular politicians are like so rare, so exciting. They are, both smart and right you know, and they they often get insanity.
0: and they yeah. often get condemned for having that intellect mm. by but yes. you know that ends up Professorial. Yeah. They're too
2: professorial. Yeah. Right. That
0: was like the Obama, that was a big thing against Obama yeah. a lot of the time. Um but your Obama, art Obama, Elizabeth yeah. Warren, anyway, yes, yes, yes. Oh god, I love So that. your art delves into the political, like uh, you have that piece, I believe yes. it's Gun uh, Gun Worlds. So can you, talk, world, yeah. Yeah, can you talk about that, that blending of art and politics? Mm.
2: Well, I think for me, um, I've always, well, actually, let me start with when I was 24, I ended up, I was really obsessed with the idea. This is when I was still a theater director. I was going to like, again, delusional arrogance. I was going <laughs> to save the American theater. Mm-hmm. And a big part of it was, What is theater that Americans go to? People don't go to theater. People don't like theater. Like, they're not into it. It can feel like a dying form in a lot of ways or or a cultural checkmark. I went to see a play. They don't go for the pleasure Mm. of it. So I ended up going on this road trip documenting this weird form of American theater called historical outdoor drama. Ooh. where they do like The Lost Colony in Roanoke yes. or like Tecumseh, the musical or like Ooh. whatever. Like
0: I love this. And I,
2: <laughs> so I spent 10 weeks on the road by myself in this like shitty $2,000 car I bought on like the Lower East Side documenting and seeing these plays. And then I worked for this theater company called Cornerstone in LA uh, that is a very famous theater company that does plays based on communities. So they'll go into a community and – adapt a classic play or write a new play that reflects the reality of this community and they'll work in collaboration with communities Mm. to do it and through them I ended up with my first real job uh, as an artist in residence in a 1500 person town in rural Mississippi for two years wow and that working for these um, un- unbelievable people who, who had been doing this work for like 25 years, collecting oral histories, mm. doing, um, they had the first quilt show that had different prizes for European tradition quilts and African tradition quilts. They, they did unbelievable work with kids. And I did four plays with them over two years that were based in the community. And that really changed my whole life. Um, and my brain in terms of really understanding on a granular level, the way that politics and daily life are so braided and knotted up. It was it, I understood, I feel like I understood the civil rights movement and Mm. race and American history in this very, very new way. And ever since then, I think my work is always, I mean, there are different projects, sometimes a project like Gun World is very much about doing this survey using my skills to tell a story, not on behalf of my own personal interests. And then there's work that I do that's really political, but that's clearly about me. <laughs> um, and I feel like and and I feel like there's space for all of it as long as you're really uh, explicit about what that is. So for Gun World, I was working with a collaborator, longtime collaborator Elizabeth Goodman, who's a designer. And we had this opportunity to spend a summer doing research about the gun debate. And for us, what was less interesting was getting into the same, you know, press play on the tape, like your side says this, and then this Mm, side says this, (laughs) like, who gives a shit? And it's like the same debate over and over again. Mm -hmm. Um, What we did was we interviewed people from all over the spectrum of the gun debate, and then would create objects that reflected their reality back to them and then share those objects with, uh, among the different people that we sort of collaborated with or interviewed to try to get sort of a richer picture of what the gun debate is and what people have to see. Um, and, and so that, but all of my work is very much, I'm sort of like a a sponge. I'm always like, like, like a sea sponge. I'm always like filtering the world through myself. And then it turns into work.
0: Incredible.
1: God, I know. I mean, what an opportunity you had there and you were there for two years. Uh,
2: in rural Mississippi for two years, the gun project was the summer project, but yeah, yeah, I was in, I was in Mississippi for two years. I went to do one play and then the woman who was running this, um, rural community arts organization, she and I just clicked and I just felt like I couldn't leave until Mm I had had her teach me just everything. Yeah. Like just, she was so, uh, she was so amazing. She just, her name is Patty Crosby. The organization was Mississippi cultural crossroads. They just made this massive, uh, there was a massive acquisition there. They'd, be, they'd been doing children's art uh, for, you know, the 30 years of the organization. And they had 30 years worth of children's art that they had made in this town in Mississippi and they just donated it to the Mississippi Museum uh no the Mississippi oh yes uh Mississippi Archives and History just acquired 1818 pieces of art that was made by children at this cultural organization between 1979 and 2008. Wow. wow. And I feel like they they were just I mean they are so incredible and it just also made me realize that people are like oh you were in Mississippi for me, Mississippi is not different than L.A. or San Diego or anywhere that I have lived mm-hmm. or grown up. It's just more explicit and it's more naked. And so it taught me a lot about every subsequent place that I lived in terms of race, politics, social negotiation, class. Like It was just so exposed there, but it's not different. It's not even... I would say, uh, well, it's a little worse, but it's, it's very, um, LA has the same problems of race and class and money. It's just a little more complicated.
1: Yeah. So what responsibility do you think if any artists have, um, to comment on societal issues? Because this has been a thing that's gone on forever. You know, we can look at towards art to whether it be music or a play or a painting that, Kind of turns a conversation or starts a conversation about societal issues how important is that do you think what's the responsibility of an artist?
2: Well here's the thing that I think is really important I think you see these days it's very fashionable in art funding and mm. in art making to be like this project changes the w-. like I want to be really clear art does not change the world in terms of political movement. Mm-hmm. I never think that and I never promote that. And I think artists and institutions and grantors that want to uh believe that are are full of shit. <laughs> if you'll use the <sighs> language.
3: Yeah.
2: Um, because journalism does that.
3: Mm. Uh
2: nonprofits and advocates and activists are the ones who make change in that way. Art does not and cannot do that. What art does is change the way that people see. It takes people's head kind of off their neck Mm -hmm. and spins it around and puts it back on. And it makes people see things differently. And that can then help with all the other stuff. And I think it's a critical role. I don't think that we could live without it. I don't think we could have any of the movements that we've been having in the past few years without it.
3: Mm. But
2: for instance, if you look at Me Too, I feel like there's some Me Too art, but really Me Too is about journalism and about people coming forward and laws being passed and laws being put into place and HR departments having to deal. <laughs> like, okay. that's Me Too. What the art does is maybe give people who can't quite see it an ability to see it and understand it, and then maybe support it. Yeah. I also think that art. I'm not interested, and I've never been interested in agitprop. Um, I am very political with very radical political points of view, but that's not in my work. I think my work is a lot more interested in the in the places that are really knotted up and complicated, and that's the other thing. I think work that tries to like put it a certain way. I'm not into that. I want the work. I think art is supposed to put us in the, in the contradictions in the center of the knot to have to deal with the ways that all these different forces are pulling against each other. Mm -hmm. And I think that that's much more um, interesting for me, both in what I make and what I watch.
0: I love that metaphor. It's, it's incredible. And I love that perspective of art. Mm -hmm. It's so interesting And, you know, I I was kind of just digging into some of the other things that you have done and, um, your work with the feminist spiritual text and magic was really intriguing (laughs) and it just made me, you know, think about sort of the persecution of women and tied to magic and, you know, witchcraft, all these things. Um, I just wanted to, to know if you could tell us a little bit about that and how it connects to feminism for you.
2: Well, I mean, I think that all of my work is feminist all the time. It just has to be. Um, I don't even have to worry about it. It's just feminist enough. It's like, that's just going to always be like that. But mm-hmm. I started diving into cults and spiritual movements of early California, mm. like the turn of the 20th century, like the late 1900s, because this stuff has been around. People are like, ooh, Scientology. Scientology is like fifth generation of this stuff. (laughs) This stuff has been. um, And I did a video, uh, which I can show you a link to. I did this, God, 11 years ago, um, where there was this magic, this sex magic practitioner, and also one of the co-founders of Jet Propulsion Laboratories.
3: <laughs>
1: oh, yes, yes, yes. I know um, the story. I know the story. Yes, right, yes. yes. Right? Um,
2: uh, Jack Parsons. Yes. And I was reading, <laughs> we just moved to L.A., I was in grad school, I was four months pregnant, I was reading City of Course by Mike Davis, and he was talking about how Jack Parsons would do this sex magic ritual on his, like, Tony Pasadena lawn, where he would have naked pregnant women jumping through hoops of fire Whoa. and i was wow. immediately i was immediately like i have to do that so i have this <laughs> video where i'm like 9 months pregnant jumping through hoops of fire holy and shit and that sort of start yeah yeah i'll send you the link it's really good it's and amazing. that started sort of my interest in in a lot of these sort of early cults and i was on this little weird residency and the woman who uh, unfortunately, since past, her mom at the time was had dementia and was dying. And she said, my mom was really involved in Dianic Wicca in the 60s and 70s. Do you want all of her books?
1: Oh, my gosh. <laughs> dude, <laughs> <Wow>. <laughs>
2: like,
3: uh Yeah. Wow.
1: Um, and
2: as I was reading these books, I realized some of the most radical feminism happened in the spiritual space. And there was this one uh, spell in one of these books that was like, uh, it was a spell for healing after rape. And it said, and it ended with, you are beautiful, it's not your fault, may patriarchy fall. God damn. And And this is, right? And I was like, okay, nobody was saying this in public feminism in this time. It's happening in this, Spiritual space, And the more that I was reading about women and the very famous Barbara Ehrenreich text, um, witches, midwives, nurses, witches and midwives, which is this amazing uh, pamphlet that she made in the 70s, this understanding that the reason that everything that witches have are kitchen items is because that's what women have. What, what are they? They're cauldrons. Groom, like this is what women would have in their kitchen and why would women go to witchcraft because they had no political power
3: Mm.
2: there's this amazing book from like the 1400s where it's a bunch of women it's called the distaff gospels and it was in this like little french town it's one of the few documents we have of what sort of women's wisdom was even though it was totally written by a man. (laughs) and you can tell in all these fucked up ways but you get the realization that like women did spells because they had no political power Mm. so when women are like if you take some of your child's urine and put it in your husband's food he won't beat your children or if you tell men that if they beat you as a pregnant woman you're going to give birth to like a monster like This is the only space of power Mm -hmm. that women had were these because and it's essentially wish fulfillment because they they didn't have power in other ways. And so that's why then men tried to suppress that because it's scary and it's powerful and they can see that that's the one outlet that women are going to. If you look at women in the Middle Ages and up to the present day. And so you see it in the radicalism of 1960s, 1970s feminist spiritualism. Like, it is very radical. It is the most radical. And it's the most radical for reasons that are sometimes very painful, which is that, like, this is the only space to make a new reality. Mm. So that's a space that, especially if we're looking at things like climate catastrophe, and we're looking at problems that feel so, so huge. and so unbelievably unsolvable that this is the space. This is the space. And so for this particular project that you're referring to, I was thinking about like, if it had been a matriarchy, if it had never been a patriarchy, if mm-hmm. women had always run things, what would be our rituals? What would be the things that we came together and, wow. uh, and celebrated as a group? Like what, what would those things be? And it's an ongoing project and this space is kind of an ongoing space for me because I'm not a very woo-woo person, actually. Like, I'm not like, I, I, I'm not a member of those kind of clubs. I'm not susceptible to cults, even though I'm fascinated by them. Mm. But, yeah, that idea that this area is the most, um, is the richest space for women to fantasize a new reality.
1: I, my uh, my head is exploding <laughs> i can't even get over i just got i can't i want to go home and and edit this rewind this and listen to this part yeah, all over again like it's I, so good my head is fucking exploding first of all it's so we good. need to do this now like no there's been no time that <laughs> yes. women should have stopped doing witchcraft yes. if that's the case what you're well, explaining the thing, the, there's we, no time but there's no time that they have stopped Okay. There's well, no
2: time that they have. Uh, let me rephrase and that. Then we all should be doing when, it when...
1: <laughs> because we're 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 in so much trouble. We're in so much trouble. These as women, before yeah. before
2: uh before this past election in twenty twenty, I made a spell and sent it to all of my friends. Oh like, my god! I made, I made a witch spell. I like put it in the mail. I had everybody like gather objects and playing cards and tie them together and burn them. And like oh, there oh was a god. whole is spell and part of it is also like focusing yourself spiritually mm. uh for the work and I have to say this like I have to ask how old are you guys because I feel like... I'm we're 43. Yeah, we're we're in, in our
0: 40s. <laughs> All
2: right. We're in our 40s. I'm about to read you something that is going to fucking
0: blow oh your mind. Oh, my God. I'm so so excited. Woman, my, Maya, do you know this, you're, my new, is... you're my
1: new best friend? I don't know if you know this yet. <laughs> read me everything. Yes. I know everything.
0: Yes. Yes.
2: So there's this amazing uh, British novelist and essayist named Rachel Cusk, who is so... God, her stuff is so beautiful. She's like the Didion of our day. She's amazing. And there's an interview that my friend, Nikki Beer, who's an amazing writer, sent to me with her. And she said this. Um, so Rachel Cusk says, I suppose if there's a reckoning in middle age, it's a tragic sense that you have been formed by things and sent hither and thither by those things and put in a frenzy and made to run around the place and up and down the house in the service of those things. And they were not real. Oh, They were the product of your upbringing or conditioning or gender or social class. And I think there's a certain point where suddenly the grip of all of that on you loosens. It's like a stage set beginning to sort of crumble and you start to see it wobbling. And I think that you can get some really startling and frightening perspectives on identity once you start looking at it from there. The thought that you've wasted your entire life in the service of things that didn't really exist.
0: (laughs) wow girl right oh and I my feel God. like so yeah it's so yeah. real I'm covered in goosebumps P.S. Right? P.S. right so
1: real so- and it reminds me of I just put a post on my personal Instagram and I don't want to demean the woman that you just mentioned but uh or I guess not demeaning but it's another author Glennon Doyle with her book Untamed I felt that's I got all of that same thing from her like the same thing of like we are tamed to exist in this space and we are tamed to sacrifice ourselves for the greater good being a martyr to our children and our families and our houses and it's like fuck that break free of that like we are more than that right you know when you look around and this age is right this age is right that middle age is totally correct and and the spiritual which is why
2: men are afraid of middle-aged women they should
1: be. go Mm,
2: and the patriarchy does does a lot to try to specifically go after middle-aged women and strip us of our Mm. eroticism, strip us of our desirability, like, it's because it's fucking scary because we're fucking really smart. Yeah. Like, but I feel like (laughs) spiritualism, but I feel like spiritualism has been a place to fantasize that new reality where all of these structures aren't real. Mm. They are as unreal as they are. They are really not real. And I feel like that's a place where, again, the art space is a place to like create these alternate realities. And mm. art itself is a super fucked up, patriarchal, arbitrary, bullshit structure. Yeah. Um, at least the art world, right? It's, it's mm. sexist as fuck. It's arbitrary as fuck. It's the, it's the worst. Mm. But the making of art, um, that is... And I have to tell you about this one um, piece that I'm about to do, which I think you guys are really good. At. So on my website, you'll see that uh, when I was making the transition from theater to, to visual art, I was doing these performances called Endurance Performance Propositions, where I would take a piece of culture, like a, a sort of very big, juicy piece of culture that's embedded in us. And I would apply endurance or duration to it to, like, break it open. Mm. So there's this, from Birth of a Nation, there's this famous chase scene where little Flora, the little white virginal Flora, Mm. gets chased by the mulatto Gus, by the lustful mulatto. And she throws herself off a cliff rather than submit to his advances. And then her brother founds the KKK. And that's a heroic thing, right? Right. This is one of the most um, disturbing and important scenes in American cinema. Now, the thing about the scene is that it is the template visually, filmically. It is the template that every chase scene that any of you have ever seen is based on. Just in terms of the shot structure. Mm. Every chase scene in the history of cinema is based on this totally fucked up, mm. racist scene. It is in our DNA as viewers. Wow. So what I did is I, I taped the film frame onto the floor and I taught the 66 edits to six dancers. And we repeated the scene, trading off roles every at every iteration until we physically no longer could do it anymore. And it, when the longest iteration of it, we ran it for four hours.
1: Jeez. how. So, so it
2: was this way of like, of exorcising this material from our body. Mm. So I'm about to do another one where it's endurance performance proposition number four, free Britney, Ooh. where I'm going to do every Britney Instagram dance video, <gasps> like in a row, oh, like those all videos. of them, so like from baby. the past, like, yes. And. And the thing about those videos that are super intense is that you don't know, is she doing them for herself? Is she being made to do them? She has this increasingly middle-aged body. Mm. There's part of it that feels really like weird. There's pathos to it. There's like, they are, they are a very complicated text, right? They're not clear. You don't look at them and you're like, yeah, Brittany, look at you, You look at them and you're like, wow, they do a lot of edits to make this look right in, or what, what am I learning? What am I expecting look right to mean
3: mm.
2: as a woman moving? Like they're, they're complicated and I am a 44 year old woman and I'm going to totally be wearing like a crop top and like cutoffs and all of the complicatedness that that is. Wow. I'm going to be doing these like Britney dances and it's there to make you uncomfortable. <laughs> like that's the thing. It's there to make you uncomfortable and to make you have to like leave thinking about these things and thinking about these things in like a complicated way. And that's what it's for. It's not there to like solve it. It's there to make you really feel in your body how fucking complicated it all is Yeah, truly really experience that really viscerally. And I think that when people have that and they're alive in that, I do think that better political outcomes come out of it. I do. I really do. I do think that like there is a, a purpose to this work.
1: Wow. Mm. There's Crazy. another video that, I mean the Britney Spears ones I I understand I know exactly what you're talking about when it comes to those videos there was a Miley Cyrus video that made me really uncomfortable but then as a feminist I was like yes girl get it and then I was like uncomfortable again watching it and it's like I think it's for the music video called her songs called do it and it's really close Mm -hmm. up on her face. And it's just stuff is Mm -hmm. being poured over her head. So, like, milk's being poured. It's, like, going in her mouth, and she's sticking her tongue out. Then, like, glitter, like, this glue glitter is being poured down. It's just constantly being poured over her face. And it was, like, kind of sexy, but then, like, disturbing. And I'm like, what am I supposed to be feeling here? It was so messed up. But I felt like, am I supposed to be, like, please, why is she doing this herself? Or is this, am I supposed to be empowering? Like, I was so confused with the entire video but it was a music video yeah i don't know have you seen yeah. that or am i am i making am i creating? i have not but that also sounds like it's very
2: uh based on like that's a very performance art yes. like and i feel like yeah and i feel like the fact that she can then get that out yeah for people to watch through yeah. her pop music mm-hmm. is fucking fantastic yeah. it's, like- it's like oh yeah like absolutely fucking fantastic like, like is it supposed it...
1: to be like is it supposed to be like pornography Is it like supposed to be sexy or is it supposed to be so gross that's that right. you, you think it's that's sexy right. but then you're turned that's off by it and it's right. like jesus yeah. what the fuck that's is happening right. here? you know that's yeah. right yeah. that's
2: right and actually there's uh there's a piece that i did called the horrors dialogue so like one of the most famous forms of pornography mm-hmm. is called the horrors dialogue where it was or like it was the form that all porn took from like the 1400s to the 1900s all written porn wow. all written porn always took the form of the older woman telling the younger woman how this shit was going to go down Dang, like that was, yes. was go, that was what it was going that was what it was have you couldn't have porn without the older woman be like you know this look, this is how it is, mm-hmm. so I wrote this horror dialogue, and it, and I had these three older, incredibly glamorous older you know mature actresses read this incredibly nasty pornography. Mm. and when you're watching it, like part of it, like some of the things they're reading are are porn, and some of them are from. Trials from sex crimes, wow. and it's all in the bucket. And when you're watching it, you're like, "I'm turned on, but I shouldn't be. Yes. I don't know. Yes. This is, the- yeah. and I feel like, yeah, like that is that kind of visceral. That thing that Miley Cyrus is doing. You're like, I'm supposed to like it. I don't like this. Yeah. I'm kind of into it. I'm yeah. grossed out that I'm into it. Like, but yeah, she's doing it to challenge herself as this desire object and yes
0: wow
1: but so so, but so here's here's a question then as a woman as a woman watching it that's what I felt what is does it challenge a man does he have the same reaction like do you think that that because I feel like it's challenging to men who watch pornography is like look at have this in your face of this Somewhat turning on, somewhat turning off. Like, do you think that men have the same sort of reaction when they would see something like that?
2: I mean, I think that they do. I think that they might not have the language mm. for it that women do. Yeah. Um, and I think that a lot of times they might get reactive uh, in ways that they're like, well, I just don't like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Ah! <laughs> Yeah, and it's like, <laughs> you don't like that. But why not? Like, is yeah. there space for that kind of conversation? It's mm. really—I mean—I feel like that's that's something that can be really hard. It's like making space where it's like, yeah, let's talk about it. Let's let's get into this.
1: Mm. My gosh! Well, I got to tell you, I this know. was just a fantastic uh, interview. I'm so excited. <laughs> tell me a little bit about your podcast. Yes. Like, where can we hear it? What's it about? I mean, I know okay. you don't like Ted Lasso, uh, but yeah. I mean, uh, yeah. what else?
2: Well, wait. no, but we don't like Ted Lasso. Very but again that's the thing we're making you uncomfortable and you're like oh but I, I like, this <laughs> yeah. also. No. Yeah. like we did we did this episode recently on the queen's gambit mm. and it's like yeah once we tell you how fucking shitty this is yeah. you're never going to be able to enjoy it again you're welcome Oh, yeah. I love um, this. you know like so the sauce is my collaborator and i uh my co-host rebecca cohen and i we just break down culture into its teensiest, tastiest bits. And I have to say for me, because one of the things that I wanted to mention, I also also write a lot. I do a lot of writing. Mm. And there was an essay that I wrote a few years ago about Paul Manafort that ended up getting a lot of readers. Mm. Um, Paul Manafort had his text just in terms of ways that this kind of work or this kind of mode of inquiry can have some very direct political consequence. Um, so Paul Manafort had his text hacked in around 2017, not him, his daughter. Her mm. phone got hacked mm. and hundreds of thousands of her texts ended up online.
3: Wow. And it's
2: her talking to her sister about like dad and how like after he went to the Ukraine, he lost his moral compass we just keep eating the lobster as if none of this happened. Wow. The money is blood money. All of this stuff. Wow. Oh, shit. And all of that got published. All of that got published by Politico, by like major organizations, news organizations. It was used in every article about Paul Manafort, every yeah. essay about Paul Manafort, every profile included excerpts of these texts of these daughters talking about their dad. And his affairs and his all that stuff, right? Oh, wow. But there was one cluster of texts that no one, no one touched. Even though they were just as public and this is part of this document as everything else, no one wrote about them. Mm. And it's this cluster where the daughters are talking about how for years their dad, Paul Manafort, made their mom, Catherine Manafort, have gangbangs with black men. <gasps>
1: What? what excuse me what, what, what <laughs> nobody talked about that <laughs> wait what no nobody <sighs>
2: talked about this because it is complicated for many reasons to talk about this right it's complicated because How can you confirm this story Mm. in the same way that you confirm other things? Like you're not going to find men. The wife isn't going to confirm these stories. Is it our business to know, but it is out in public. Like what do you do with this fucking information? Right.
1: Damn.
2: So I wrote an essay about it where, where it was about that. And it was about what do you do with this information? Why do people not write about it? What does it say about us? And what does it say about me too? And what does it say about the me too stories we're telling and the Me Too stories that we can't tell. Mm. Because most of the Me Too stories we tell are the stories that happen once you're safely away from the situation, right? right. There are a lot of stories that are slipping through the cracks because it gets really complicated, right? Mm. And I feel like getting into... Um, this, the thing about the podcast is that the podcast for me and for Rebecca is a place to be breaking down the cultural performance of politics, like the way that different movements and incels and like leftists and like, how are these people performing their politics culturally and using that in their political mode? And then how is culture promoting certain political ideas secretly? So we find the culture in the politics and the politics in the culture Mm. and we sort of break it open and look at it. And I feel like at first it's just fun and it is fun and we're funny and we get drunk and it's like a party. (laughs) It's really, it's like a super, like we're, we have the same number of men and women listeners. Like we have great fans who are like, even though we're these like raging, you know, killjoy feminists, we have (laughs) a lot of male listeners who are like, right in there for the party and it's a party and we have a really good time doing it, but those things are very knotted up in one another. Mm -hmm. And, and it's been great for me to have this place every week where we can go and break it down like that. Yeah, And it has a major, we had this one episode about um, what I was calling trauma porn, which is like the new blockbuster uh, genre of abuse documentaries mm. like it's become a fucking blockbuster genre yeah abuse documentaries are a whole thing there are a million of them i've watched them all mm. like surviving Our kelly part one surviving Our kelly part yeah. two there's like the scene one the keepers like it's it's a genre it's yeah. like it's, and why is it so appealing right and i just wrote an essay about it and it started um it started with an episode that we did of the sauce where it's like how can we break this down take it apart when people when the right wing talks about free speech Mm. what does that really mean when uh, the left wing fantasizes about how it's so much better in europe what are they getting totally fucking wrong like all of these things are ways of like getting way more precise about how uh, how did um how did People talk about Trump as this mafia figure because he is an organized criminal, right? But nobody's talked about the ways that mafia narratives and mafia movies prepared us to accept Trump Mm. in a way that – so it's the way that those things feed back and forth is what we do. And we do it in a super fun way, but that's what we're after is how are these things like – braid it up together and how can we take it apart so we can really see what these things are trying to do to us and see what these conversations are missing avoiding how they're trying to manipulate us all of that that's like that's what we're kind of after oh
1: my gosh that's amazing amazing tina and i want to
2: especially promote a recent episode that we did. We did an, a, a great episode about critical race theory mm. and breaking down like, what is all the brouhaha about critical nice, race theory? Like, why is it a bullshit performance? What does it come from? What actually is critical race theory? All that stuff. And then for our follow-up, we found an actual high school ethnic studies teacher who studies ethnic studies, like mm-hmm. who studies ethnic studies and education. Okay. And she has to be anonymous. Um, but for various reasons, yeah. but she talked about what it actually means to teach ethnic stuff Like it's so it was, it, and it was awesome. Oh so God, our two parter on yes. critical race theory oh. and ethnic studies, I think you will come out of it. Listeners uh, knowing stuff and it's not dry. It's really, really fucking interesting. Oh
1: my God. Oh, I, I love it. I can't it. wait. I know. And I, before we say goodbye, I want to say thank you for, Saying the f word more than I probably ever have on an, a single episode. Uh, oh my god, I I'm so it. sorry. No, 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 no. Of no, 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 children no, 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 and no, it's, no, like no. it's Really but bad. She, listen to me. Yeah. I she throws the f bomb every. Say episode. f every. Uh, yeah, I'm saying fuck <laughs> every five seconds, and I hear you say fuck, and I'm like, yes, yes, yes. <laughs> Finally, somebody else who's gonna <laughs> a kindred curse, spirit. A yes, kindred spirit. I love it. I love it so much. So thank yes. you, and you are doing incredible work. Please wow. continue to do it. I I encourage everyone to go listen to the song boss podcast and,
0: and check to out, check what what out doing. and check out her work at uh
1: correct? My, that's it that's it oh my gosh thank you so much you're amazing
0: yes thank you for coming on the well, show it's,
2: it is my great pleasure and thank you guys and yeah i think art has a huge part of this of of this muck but mm. it's it's weird and it's weird and to the side uh and and it's really important makes yeah. it harder for people but and people don't like you know people like easy answers but yeah. that's not what it's
1: about no not oh. at all life is not about easy answers no. that's for sure well my god have a wonderful yes. day and uh thanks
0: again I hope thank we you. Get to talk soon
1: all right thank bye. you so right. much bye, bye guys bye. Bye.
0: if you want to learn more about this week's guest please follow the episode notes on our blog at themuckpodcast.fireside.fm and be sure to follow us on Instagram and Facebook at the muck podcast. To support the muck podcast, please visit our
1: Patreon page. We have 3 levels of support and different goodies for each level: muckraker, policy wonk, or bleeding heart. We can't do it without you. Music for the muck podcast written and performed by Sean Docherty.